So we have been praying that God would speak to us, and so now we come to the time where we are going to read God's Word and then to study it together, asking Him that He would speak to us in this time. So would you, would you turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to be studying verses 23 through chapter 11, verse 1, 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through 11, 1. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be served. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. This is God's word. May I add his blessing to the reading of it. You may be seated. Would you pray with me one more time? Heavenly Father, as we do come to your word, we ask again that you would speak. Father, truth doesn't come from our own flesh, but it comes through the revelation of yourself, by your word, and by your Holy Spirit. And so would you do that today, Father, revealing to yourself... Uh, who you are, what you've done, and revealing to us how, God, we ought to apply this in our own lives and think through it and, and, and live it out, Father, with our families, in our workplace, in our community, in our neighborhood, to be witnesses to Christ. So, Father, we ask you to lead and guide this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I know that I hate missing out on things, and I know that you hate missing out on things. One of the things that we can miss out on is the power of the Christian life we start with the wrong foundation. We can miss in the power of the Christian life if we forget the basis of it is being in the gospel. One way that we miss out on the Christian, the power of the Christian life is by living a life of legalism. Legalism. Talk about that more in a minute. Because the second way that we miss out on the Christian life is that of license. We live a life of license. Conveniently, they're both L words, so you can remember them. Legalism and license. So we're going to jump back and forth here in our time today. Um, but, you know, let's give some definitions here. First of all, legalism is that adding of requirements to the Christian faith. Requirements that are outside of what Scripture demands. The Bible is clear that salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ it's not by what we do. It is not by our religious performance. It is not by living out, a, living perfectly uh, to some moral code. It is by the work of Jesus Christ that we are saved. He's the one who lived the perfect life. So that everyone who believes in him gets his righteousness. They get the, the benefit of all that he accomplished, of all that he did. 
Well, we receive that by faith. It becomes a gift to us. If we're going to make a a math equation out of it, we would uh, put it this way, that faith in Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Faith in Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. That's that's the way it goes. It starts and it ends in faith in Christ because of of what he has accomplished. Now, the the problem of legalism is the idea that something else is needed to be saved. It changes the equation that faith in Jesus plus something else, that equals salvation. Could be a good work. Could be something else that needed to be saved. Could be identified to be a good Christian or even be recognized as part of the church. And the results of that are are devastating. I've met many Christians who've been damaged by legalistic attitudes of the people around them, family and and, and by the churches they attend. One of the results of legalism is judgmentalism. An attitude of people where others are criticized and judged for being less than others, uh, typically because they make different decisions, have different priorities. Now, we're not talking about big moral issues here, but we're talking about judgmentalism in some of the smaller decisions, or even all the decisions, making all, maybe even little things into big things, and just adding up the requirements that are there. Believe it or not, the Bible does not give a long, detailed list of moral conduct, but what it does is it gives parameters from here to here. These things are uh, forbidden. And within that range there that we see that there is freedom to make decisions within those boundaries. I've been thinking about one of the reasons why we dislike judgmentalism and judgmental attitudes. And one of the reasons is that we, uh, you know, we want to fit in. We want to have people who are going to accept us, to receive us. We're part of a group. We know that our friendships are going to endure. That, yes, people can challenge us, you know, and help us to grow. But the relationships are going to continue when we are judged by others, it feels like those relationships are, are at risk. And we don't like that. And it's a terrible thing to be judged in something where the Bible doesn't require a certain kind of behavior. It's a terrible thing to be judged on things that aren't scriptural. So there's a, you know, one of the things in legalism is that it destroys relationships. But it also makes us to trust ourselves instead of God. It forgets that we're all sinners. It forgets that we're all in need of forgiveness. And there's nothing that we can do to earn our own salvation. It tends to focus on some sins being worse than others. We make ourselves into our own saviors. We might say, sure, I need faith, but I also need A, B, and C as a part of my life. And I can't really be saved unless I get those things right. That's not the gospel. It's adding to the gospel, and it adds pressure. It doesn't work. It's false. The gospel is the good news that we're saved through faith in the work of Jesus Christ alone. His merit alone qualifies us. For heaven. Legalism causes Christians to be overscrupulous, causes Christians to care about things that don't really matter, making the Christian like life look dreadful and to focus on little things, often failing to give attention to the things that really matter and the things that matter most. Legalism is not of God. It's adding something that God does not require, uh, destroys spiritual life. But there's a second error, and the error is the error of license our second L word today, license. Many times people pick license in response to legalism. License is the idea that since uh, Jesus came to forgive us, then we have permission to sin freely without any regard of God's word or his will or his desires. It's a rejection of any moral code to guide the Christian life or decision-making. 
It's, it's wrong because it forgets what Jesus came to establish. He came to establish righteousness inside of our lives. He, he came to bring us into a relationship with God, into a relationship of, of, of love, of respect. We call that covenant. You know, it's a covenant relationship with us and with God. And any relationship has parameters of that relationship that are there. So a Christian who's truly renewed in Christ, they want to be virtuous, they want to do justice, they want to, to um, do mercy, they want to walk humbly with their God, and there's, there's a virtue that's there, but it's a relational virtue based on the person and work of Jesus. And so this spirit of, of license has its own way of leading people into destruction. It leaves people making terrible decisions, separates people from one another as they deviate and unrelentingly, and it leads people away from that relationship with God. All right, so we have legalism, we have license, but let's talk about a third L word. And our third L word today is liberty. Liberty. It's a word that helps us to avoid the destruction that happens in both legalism and license. And what liberty teaches us from the scripture is how Jesus Christ has set us free to glorify God. And that's the big theme of our passage today. If you look at chapter 10, verse 23, we see the Apostle Paul beginning by writing this. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. He's going back on a phrase he's quoted earlier. This is this all things are lawful is, is something that has been um, passed around among the Corinthian people. And, and it's something that he agrees with. Before he used it, he talked about it, and while he agrees with it, he sees some of the error in it. And today, he's looking at it again, and he's saying something like, yeah, that might be true, but let's think about some other considerations as we realize that. Because this passage shows the nature of Christian liberty. We can see how it's against legalism when it says all things are lawful. It's enormous freedom to make the decisions that we think are right. Gone are the days where we would think that a relationship with God comes through a narrow set of moral decisions. The Christian life is a relationship secured through Jesus Christ. It's relational. God is gracious. God treats us as his adult children, capable of making choices on what is best, given his principles, parameters of relationship. But it's also against license. doesn't mean that all of our decisions are good. That's why verse 23 goes on to say that not all things are helpful. We make decisions that hurt us, bring us in a wrong direction, and they may even hurt others. That's why the rest of the verse goes on to say, all things are lawful, but not all things build up. Here we have God, who's this loving Father, who's allowing us to make these decisions, giving liberty about a number of items. But we know that we don't always use those decisions to build up, either ourselves or the people in our lives. So liberty is a totally different way of looking at the world rather than license or legalism. Because it's against legalism when it says all things are lawful, against license when it says not all things build up. And we see that going on in verse 24 when he says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So what we're going to look at today, when our whole passage is about Christian liberty. Jesus Christ came to set us free so that we could glorify God. And God wants you to know the freedom and liberty of knowing Jesus Christ. But he wants you to know it and enjoy it in a way that doesn't hurt you or doesn't hurt others. So today, uh, we're going to look at that. We're going to look at it in light of decision making. How, do, how does Christian liberty help us as we make decisions? So the first thing we want to look at is living in liberty. 
We see that in verses 25 through 27. Now remember, 1 Corinthians is a letter. It was written um, to a church in the city of Corinth in modern-day Greece by the Apostle Paul just three years after it had begun. He'd spent about a year and a half with them. And so now he's writing back to address certain issues. And over the last few weeks, we've seen what that issue is. And the issue, starting in chapter 8, going all the way through, uh, chapter 10 is about Corinthian believers going to pagan temples. And they were going to eat meals in there. But as a result of them going to eat these meals in there, they were participating in a pagan sacrifice and offering up pagan prayers. They're really like small-scale worship services. And as Paul said last week, in the service of not the false gods that are represented, but demons who are leading them astray from the truth. Well, today's passage is kind of like a PS. It's like a postscript at the end of this long discussion. Because it brings up another question. Because the question is basically this. Let's say that that same meat that was offered at that temple, that you're, you're not supposed to go to the temple, not supposed to do that, but let's say that you're, you're not there, you're at home, or you're at the meat market, and that same meat that was offered there is for sale there. Should you go ahead and buy it and eat it? It's kind of leftovers, right? The leftovers. Now, I think this is important to Paul is because people tend to swing, swing from extreme to extreme, right? So we can't do this here. Well, then that eliminates all of it, and it just makes life simpler if, if we just eliminate all this food off the table. Well, um, you know, let's stop people from buying this sort of meat altogether. And it just begins to add up rules. And it creates a new legalism. It distracts people from faith in Christ. It can be divisive to the church. And so, in verse 25, Paul gives this very straightforward answer. And he says, basically, go ahead and buy it. Go ahead and eat it. He says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. His attitude is basically this. Meat is, meat is okay, but false worship is not okay. Meat is just meat, no matter what people do to it. So you can go ahead and eat. False gods don't exist. Idols really are nothing. And it doesn't matter that it was dedicated to some sort of false god. You have the freedom to buy the meat and eat it as you wish. Just don't worship in it. You know, which brings some clarity if you're kind of reflecting back on the last few weeks working together that the issue was not the meat was sacrificed to the idol. The issue was that they, everyone who went to one of those dinners was a participation in a small-scale religious ceremony. The problem was false worship. Worship is the issue. It's the, the thing that God calls us to. It's, it's the thing that God points us to, to attentiveness. What is it that we worship? How is it that we're worshiping? So the, the rule then in verse 25 is eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Now, this is a pretty significant break from uh, the, the Jewish pattern. You know, again, a lot of these were uh, Jewish people who had been converted to Jesus Christ. And the Jews were very fastidious in not eating any meat that had ever been sacrificed to, to an idol. And so maybe they would go to the meat market. They would ask lots of questions just to be sure that it had never been dedicated to an idol, being kosher, or those, those sort of things. Paul's attitude is this, is God doesn't care about the history of the food, and neither should you. He shows us why in verse 26. He says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He's quoting the Old Testament, Psalm uh, 24.1, a verse of praise to God, that God is the creator of all things. All things come from his hand, and his creation is good, including this meat that is there. As Jesus said, that all foods are clean. So believers should be able to enjoy the things that God has created and to enjoy those things uh, 
that even people make from God's creation. More than that, it's a reminder to us that salvation is by grace. It's a gift given to us by God. It's a gift that we receive by faith. And so Christians should not live fearfully that they may, not be, that they may be breaking some sort of unknown command. The Bible says that when we become Christians, God writes his law upon our hearts. What does it mean to have God's law written upon our hearts? It means that God gives us a desire to obey, to obey him, to walk in relationship with him. He, he makes us virtuous in, in, in our hearts. We don't need a list of rules on how to obey. No, we have virtuous hearts that show us what it means to be devoted by God. Now, God's law is still hopeful. It shows us what he loves and delights in. That's written on our hearts. So we say, you know, I want to please God. I want to serve him. There's some guidance there. He's spoken and I listen, but my heart is directed towards him. So when God saves us in his grace, he, he justifies us. He, he makes us 100% acceptable in his sight. He gives us a new heart to please him. We don't have to live in constant worry that we are doing the wrong thing, that we're breaking some rule, that we are losing somehow the grace of God. So Paul's point is, eat if you want. Now, verse 27, he goes on to show even more liberty that they have, even in the people that they spend time with. Verse 27 says, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is said before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Remember, if you're familiar with your Bible, you'd be familiar with, um, looks like, um, chap- like Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 11, where you see Peter and Cornelius, and they're talking with each other, and we're reminded that Jews wouldn't go eat in non-Jewish homes. And here we have this, this testimony. If, if an unbeliever invites you to come in, you know, Paul's instruction is go and eat there. You have the liberty. Go and eat in, those, in that house. And we see God doing the same thing with Peter and with Cornelius back in Acts chapter 10 and 11. You know, the Jewish attitude that the Gentiles were unclean, but that wasn't a rule for Christians. They were free to eat with unbelievers as they wished. And, and when they showed up there, they didn't even need to ask if the food there was sacrificed to some idol. Can you imagine doing that? I guess to us it sounds kind of rude, right? Where does food come from? Where is it? I don't know. Maybe people do that with all the diet concerns people have. But, um, but you know, they're not supposed to grill the concerns, or they're not to grill the host with concerns of where the food came from. Be a good guest. Don't be rude. Eat what's set before you. It's not a matter of conscience. All these kinds of meat are okay. The source is okay. And just enjoy. You know, it's, it's helpful for us to see that, especially in response to legalism. The great Presbyterian minister, Donald, uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse, once told a story that I think shows how easy it is to people to add rules that are not in the Bible. But sometimes I think the Bible teaches it. He, tells, he says this, he says, around 1928, I led a Bible conference in Montrose, Pennsylvania, for about 200 young people and a few older people. One day, two old ladies complained that some of the girls were not wearing stockings. These ladies wanted me to rebuke them. Looking them straight in the eye, I said, the Virgin Mary never wore stockings. They gasped, and they said, she didn't? I answered, in Mary's time, stockings were unknown. As far as we know, they were first worn by prostitutes in Italy in the 15th century <laughs> when the Renaissance began. Later, a lady of the nobility scandalized people by wearing stockings in the court ball. Before long, everyone in the upper class was wearing stockings, and by Queen Victoria's time, stockings became the badge of the, pr- of the prude. These ladies, who were holdovers from the Victorian epic, he goes on to say, had no more to say. I did not rebuke the girls for not wearing stockings. A year or two afterward, most girls in the United States were going without stockings in summer, and no one thought anything about it. 
You know, you can imagine an attitude like that, how divisive it can be. But he goes to the heart of it. You know, this isn't commanded in the Scripture. He went on to say, nor do I believe this led toward the disintegration of moral standards in the U.S. Times were changing. Steps away from Victorian legalism was all for the better. You know, as we look at this passage, it's important guidance for us, especially living in a non-Christian world, increasingly so. We have so many decisions before us, and we don't need to go around worried whether we're making the right choice or the wrong choice. We need to live as if God has the liberty to make decisions. He's putting our laws in our hearts. And that, you know, laws in our hearts, we please him. That gives us a sense of responsibility. Responsibility for decisions and thinking through things and the way I make decisions. We'll go through a grid a little bit later. Uh, But we see there's great liberty. So we don't look for a command for every little thing. We need to live as if God's gifts are good. We live by grace. Remember that our righteousness is found in Jesus Christ, not in our own moral purity. And all that is part of Christian liberty, a part of Christian freedom. Our righteousness is in Christ. And so there's not a call to be scrupulous. We don't always judge all the decisions that other people are making, especially if the Bible doesn't speak to it. They have liberty. And if they want to do something which is not forbidden in the Scripture, we don't judge them in doing it. If we don't like it, we don't do it, but we don't judge others in it. So the first thing, we live in liberty. That's how we make decisions in light of our freedom in Christ. The second thing we do is we live in liberty, but not license. Liberty, but not license. Verse 28, he gives us another consideration. He says, but, and so he's going to speak to the licensed people here. If someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. Okay, so this is speaking against those who chose license. This is a case study where the unbeliever invites them in. They're eating. They're having a nice meal together. But the unbeliever initiates a religious ceremony before the dinner. Attaching religious significance to the things that they're doing. He makes his home kind of like the priest would treat the temple. The meal itself is part of this offering, and, and certain ceremonies are attached to the dinner. You know, basically, here the unbeliever asks the believer to participate in some mini-worship service inside of the home, and the Apostle Paul says, you should not eat in this kind of situation. The difference here is the difference between liberty and license. There's liberty to eat whatever food is served, but there is not liberty to worship in a false way. It's all about worship. Remember, he keeps going back to that. It's about worship. Worship has enormous power inside of our lives. Worship directs our hearts. Worship helps us reflect on ultimate reality. And it's important that the Corinthians and us keep um, their hearts and our hearts focused on Christ, not to be led astray in worship. One thing that's important for us to see is that worship doesn't just happen in temples or in churches. It's part of everyday life. It happens around the dinner table. Our hearts are drawn to worship, whether it's at the mall, whether it's on our phones, in the classroom. You know, hearts are drawn to worship. We're worshiping creatures. With worship being so powerful, the Apostle Paul said, don't do it, even if it's just in someone's house. And so he goes on in verse 29 to talk about conscience. Now, by conscience, he's speaking about the unbelievers understanding the Christian faith. So going back to 28, he says, if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. And then he goes on the rest of 28 to say, for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience, I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? You know, as we join in a place like that, we do not want non-Christians to come up with a false view of the Christian faith. That's why there's a limit that's here. It's for the sake of the the non-believer. 
you know, to the pagan, there are many gods, and many gods have, have you know, equal weight to each other. And the one thing that shouldn't be communicated is that Jesus is equal among all kinds of other gods. It's like Hinduism today. Uh, Hindus, as I understand, are able to worship many gods at once. I've heard of Hindus even saying that they worship Jesus Christ. He's one option among many. They don't see how these different beliefs are exclusive from one another. And so they'll go ahead and, and receive all of them and, and maybe even say, you know, we worship Jesus and we worship this other God. And so we don't want to contribute to that sort of false understanding of the nature of God. The scripture is plain. It's clear that there is one God and we would not want something, someone to think that Jesus Christ is one God among many others. And so that's the sort of reason why a believer wouldn't eat in this situation. See, Christian liberty sets up its limits to prevent against license. You know, our limits are based on the love of God. Or our limits are based on our, our desire for others to know the truth. And because of these priorities, it would be totally unfaithful to participate in this kind of worship situation. I mean, it is good for us to set up limits, isn't it? The Colorado River, you know, it wants to run out to the ocean, but they've set up the Great Hoover Dam. And the Hoover Dam, then it backs up this water. There's Great Lake Mead, one of the tourist destinations of the West. You know, a place where people go boating or swimming or whatever. But while this river may want to run free, you know, it comes up against this dam and it's able to accomplish so much more. You know, provides electricity to three states. Um, so tourist attractions I mentioned. And, and it's really, you know, unbelievable in what it can do. But if that dam were ever to break, you know, you see the unleashing of that water to, to areas that are totally unprepared for it. It would destroy homes, lives, property there and lose that electricity. So there's a place for restraint in liberty, both for what could be accomplished and both for the um, holding back of more destructive habits. And so we want to limit things that, maybe, that we may have liberty to have, things like social media, things that we consume or do with our bodies, things that we, uh, ways we shop, the way that we even consume. If we spend most of our time treating things like things that we consume, it won't be long before we start treating our faith like that too. So, you know, we put limits on to keep our hearts focused on the Lord, to stay near to him. Now, if you go back to verse 29, it shows also where a good conscience comes from. See, good conscience doesn't come from someone else's understanding. A good conscience comes from the scripture. People have wrong beliefs about all kinds of things, and we may adjust some of our own behaviors based on their wrong understanding, but it doesn't mean that we need to change our own opinions because of their uh, wrong beliefs. We want to avoid all kinds of tyranny, even the, the tyranny of wrong beliefs. It's not the weaker person with the wrong view of God's creative world who sets the rules. God is the one who sets the rule. But if you haven't noticed, in our world today, uh, there is often the person with a misinformed conscience who becomes judgmental and legalistic. You can think of the tyranny uh, that we could face in our own days, where you're not allowed to speak freely about convictions and beliefs that you have. You're forced to believe what other people believe. That's the modern day of, uh, of tyranny. We have to, we're told we have to accept uh, sinful and dangerous lifestyles without exception. If we don't accept them, then we'll be judged by the culture. That's the tyranny of a, of a bad conscience. But, but our liberty is not determined by another person's conscience. We don't go along with a false interpretation of the people around us. We have the freedom in Christ to re receive what God has given, to rejoice in what he's created, to rejoice in what he's revealed to us. As he says in verse 30, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. 
We live in liberty, we don't live in license. And that helps us to form our decisions. And so the third thing that we want to look at today is liberty and love. Liberty and love, we see this starting in verse 31. Now these last few verses help us to answer this question, well, what can we do, what should we do? You know, you know, how do we have this guidance in decision making? I want to draw out four principles in making our decisions. And all these principles really help us focus on two things, loving God and loving our neighbor and loving them well. The first principle we see in verse 31, it's the glory of God principle. It says this, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. We care about God's reputation. We want to show forth his glory. We want people to be captured and to be in wonder of who he is and what he has done. We want to show forth both his holiness and his love. We're kind of like store mannequins. You know, mannequins are set up in the windows to show off the clothing that the, that the store has. We sometimes call them dummies, right? You know, the, the, the job of the dummy is to magnify the fashion of the, of the store. They put clothing on the dummy. Um, that's an attraction. Lures us in. Maybe get us, maybe so we'll buy that or maybe buy something else. Now, the, the clothes on the dummy don't come from the dummy, right? They come from the owner of the store, and the owner puts them on so that those outside would think, oh, yeah, that looks good. I think I'd look good in that, or my friend would look good in that. I want, I want to get one of those. Tony Evans once said, he said, on our best of days, we are nothing but dummies. What God wants to do is to dress us up. That's what he does. He dresses us up in his grace. That's why he forgives us. That's why he gives us his Holy Spirit. That's why he gives us a new nature. He wants to attract people to himself. Both when times are good for us, but also when times are difficult for us, that we show forth his glory. That's his purpose. That's what he saves us in. That's why he is so gracious to us, to show forth his glory to a lost and a broken world. So the big question for us is this, is, you know, when I live, do I show forth something glorious of God? Is this decision going to show forth the glory of God, or is it about my glory? Is it about my comfort? Is it about my good? When we answer this, we'll realize that there are many things that we can't do. We just can't do. There's other things that we might still choose to do, but we might do it for a new motivation. Saying, I want God to be glorified in this. I'm too worried about my own reputation. I didn't be worried about God's instead. But we see that there are so many things that we could do in the way that we please God. Notice what he says in verse 31. He talks about eating or drinking. You know, when you had breakfast this morning... You know, did you think about that as a chance that you had to glorify God and to bring glory to him? Even the mundane, even these small things that we do, it's our chance to glorify him. The second principle that we want to take in decision-making is the edification principle. We see this in verses 32 and 33. He says, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. So as we make our, our decisions, we're making decisions based off of whether this helps other people or whether this is going to hurt them. And we see three things from this. First, we might ask, is my decision going to be unnecessarily offensive to others? Now, that seems to be a pretty heavy question to ask because people seem to be offended by so many little things, Right? But you know, we have the Apostle Paul not wanting to cause offense either to Jews or to Greeks, whether people are in the church or outside the church. 
What he's saying here, though, is that he doesn't want to do something which is going to cause unnecessary offense. If it is, you know, he takes time to weigh out his statements. He's, apparently, he's going to keep his mouth shut at times. You know, there's some care, some attentiveness that's there. And if we want to prevent um, offense, that, you know, we need to think about what, if what we need to say really matters. We also see, secondly, he says he tries to please everyone in, in everything that he does. That also sounds hard, right? Because some people are really, really hard to please. But the point is not that he's trying to get everybody's approval. He's not willing to compromise himself to get that. But he wants to seek their advantage. That's what he goes on in the third aspect of this. He wants to seek their advantage. He's going to speak the truth, but he's going to do it in a loving way. We see that in Ephesians 4.15. He wants the truth to get into their hearts. He wants them to love Jesus. We practice this when we uh, make our words helpful to other people. Legalism, rigidity doesn't do it. License tends to focus on just me and, and not other people. But when we, when we can enjoy God's gifts, when we can thank him for what he has given to us, we can use them for the blessing of others. And that's love. It's love to seek another person's advantage. It's love to see that other people's needs are met, especially their spiritual needs. And so do our habits, including our worship habits, you know, they really edify others? Do our actions and our decisions help our children grow in the Lord? Do our neighbors see what true Christian worship looks like? Do you show delight in it? Even on a snow day? Even on a Super Bowl Sunday? Is meeting with the Lord something which, which comes out of our hearts? That we show that the, that, that the worship of God supersedes the worship of things in this life? Because you're going to talk about the things that you love. And you're going to love the things that you talk about. You know, do we show this as a priority in our lives? Because we can talk with our coworkers. We can talk about our family and our friends, about what God is doing in our church, what God is doing in our life, the stories that we're hearing, how we're enjoying going to worship. You know, those are the outflow of a heart that's renewed in Christ. All right, so let's look at the third principle. third principle is the evangelism principle. We see at the end of verse 33, when the Apostle Paul wants to see people to be saved. It's kind of is connected with the previous one, but, but you know, there's a separate one. It's not just the, the edification thing of, of people that we may know even in the church, but what about evangelism, the people outside the church? Do we have the opportunity to help them to know Jesus Christ and to grow as a disciple? Are we, with, with, this, with this decision, help me to do that or hinder me in doing it? And the fourth principle is the example principle. See that in chapter 11, verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. It's a pretty bold statement. Be imitators of me. But really, Paul's been pointing to this for about three chapters now. Chapters 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. And the big point that he's drawing people to is stop being selfish. And stop and, and start living for others. Live a life of sacrifice. That only works if someone is demonstrating, not is demonstrating the character of Jesus, not living for themselves. See, the end point is not the Apostle Paul. He's not looking at me and stopping. You know, there's a comma there because the pointing is to Jesus. He's just a pointer. That's what our lives are. They're pointers to Christ, showing that there is something greater. That's Jesus. I mean, you think about what he did. He lived a life of sacrifice. And so if, if Paul were to, to, to speak of his own life, you know, any sacrifice I've made has been nothing compared to what Jesus Christ has done for me. 
Jesus is the one who didn't live for himself. He died upon a cross. He secured salvation for his people. So that becomes Paul's model, and that becomes our model at the same time. So when it comes to our decision-making, you know, one of our big questions is, can I do this in imitation of Jesus? There was those bracelets in the old statement, what would Jesus do? It was really a good question. Now, it's, the answers that people sometimes give to the question can sometimes be crazy, you know, but it's, it's, it's not a bad question to ask. You know, Paul is imitating Christ. And we won't ask that question because people will read our life sometimes before they read the Bible. Have you ever heard your kids say something um, which really bothered you, but you realize part of the reason it bothered you is because you said almost the same exact thing earlier in your life? You know, people are imitating us for good and for bad. What an opportunity we have to show the sacrificial love of Christ. That affects our decision-making. So here we have our Christian liberty is grounded in Jesus Christ, and my prayer and hope is that you would know that liberty and that you wouldn't be under the bondage of man-made rules. Do you want to know the freedom of knowing that God will forgive your sins? Do you want the freedom of having your guilt removed and the shame of sin taken away? If you do, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He died on a cross to forgive you. And as you grasp that, as you really understand it, you will realize that you are truly free. You're free to enjoy God. You're free to live for something that will endure. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've not received him, receive him today. Confess your sins to him. Tell him you're a sinner. Ask him to forgive your sin and ask him to change you. And he promises that he will forgive you and he will lead you in the paths of true spiritual freedom. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come, we're thankful for what you've given to us in Jesus Christ, and we ask that you'd help us to walk in the liberty that is in Jesus. Father, thank you that you've freed us from legalistic rules through jumping through hoops. God, also thank you that you've freed us from the bondage of sin. Help us be free of that. Not free because we live perfectly. Not free because there's no uh, relationship with, which hinges us towards you, but free because of faith, free because of what Jesus has done. And Father, let that faith work through us. There would be love to the people around us. We ask you, God, for this in Jesus' name. Amen.